This is a Federal News Network podcast. For anyone in Washington wanting to understand something in the Defense Department budget, Todd Harrison has been a go-to analyst for many years. Now, after seven years at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, he's leaving to join a defense company. Mr. Harrison joins me now. Todd, good to have you on. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's begin with what prompts you to leave that third-party, honest broker, analyst kind of perch to go to one of the companies. It really is the opportunity at Meta Aerospace that presented itself and the great team that they've assembled there that I'll be able to be part of. You know, the real attractive part is I'm going to be able to stand up a new research and analysis entity within the company to keep doing the same kind of research I have been doing, but doing it from a different perch and quite frankly, at a location where we're going to have skin in the game that, you know, if my analysis says, hey, this is a really exciting market that, you know, we need to be getting into, I better be right. (laughs) So you won't be running around at sea airspace trying to set up appointments for demonstrations and that kind of thing. Oh, no, I'm not going to do the sales type. (laughs) Okay, good. Well, I wanted to get your perspective. First of all, you have been watching the development of the budget, which in some rough way should tie to what the military feels it has to do and what Congress feels it has to do. And what's your general sense of how, I don't know, efficient or how accurate or how efficacious budgeting in DOD is relative to what the nation faces? I mean, what's your overall impression after these years? You know, I've been in the think tank world for 13 years now. So at CSBA before CSIS and throughout that whole time, you know, the defense budget has really been at the core of my research portfolio and in space and air power as well. But really, a lot of my work has been focused on aspects of the defense budget. And I'll tell you, my opinion is that the budgeting process is broken. It is broken within the department. The planning, programming, budgeting, and execution system is an industrial age system, and it is not what we need to compete now and in the future in a digital age and the congressional budget process itself. uh, I mean, that kind of goes without saying it is pretty broken when it is becoming common that we go six months into the fiscal year without a budget enacted, just operating on continuing resolutions. So I don't think the current way of doing business is going to work for that much longer. And if we're serious about competing with China, if we're serious about being able to out-innovate our adversaries and potential adversaries, We can't do that effectively by continuing business as usual. And competing and out-innovating are all great, but ultimately the military has to win wars. And isn't that really the objective that should be part of this? And is that in doubt with the way things are going budget-wise and planning-wise? Well, you know, I, I would go a step further. It's not just that you want to be able to win a war. You want to be able to do more than that. You want to be able to deter a war. And so you've got to have a credible, capable force so that an adversary does not even want to get into a fight with you. And yeah, I think that we are at risk of losing that. I think we have seen our competitive advantage gradually erode over the years. And I think deterrence in several areas around the world and in several domains has started to become more and more questionable. 
We're speaking with Todd Harrison until last week, was an analyst at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, having now just joined Meta Aerospace. And getting back to that PPBE, I mean, at one time it was PPB, and somewhere along, maybe around the Nixon administration, they added the E part, the budget execution part. But in general, it's been impervious to reform. And there's been lots of gyrations on how to make it work better, but it's basically the same old instrument. And there's a commission now that's about Mm -hmm. to be formed to look at it. Who knows how long that'll take? Why so impervious to reform for something so crucial, do you think? Well, you know, ultimately, I think that the process that DOD uses is driven by the process Congress uses, right? And so they try to create a process that will fit with what Congress is doing. So I'm of the opinion that change actually has to start on the congressional side. And what I would start looking at, you know, if I was advising the PPBE commission, uh, and I know several of the members, so maybe they're listening, you know, I would tell them start on the congressional side. And in particular, look at how money is appropriated. And the antiquated titles of the budget that we use, where we divide money up and we restrict how you can spend it and the rate at which you can spend it based on whether it's, you know, research and development or procurement or operation and maintenance, et cetera, that just increasingly does not work anymore. If you are developing a software intensive program that may have some hardware, but the bulk of the work is actually in software, where is the difference between development, production, and maintenance of that code? You're really doing all of it at the same time. So the idea of bucketing the money this way and these categories, and then putting restrictions on it, restrictions on how you can move money around in the budget and how quickly you have to spend the money, it just leads to bad behavior, suboptimal performance, and it also locks us into this industrial base where DOD is constantly in the mindset of, well, you know, if we want a new capability, we need to go hire a contractor, pay them on a cost plus contract to develop it. And then we'll come back and we'll pay them again to produce it. And then we'll come back and we'll pay them again to help us maintain it. Right. And if you want to innovate, you can't operate that way anymore especially when requesting all that funding, you need about a two-year lead time between when you try to work it into your palm, your draft budget, and then submit it to Congress and wait for Congress to enact on it and appropriate the money and then come back and actually be able to obligate the money, right? You can't do it with that type of a system anymore. We've got to look more and more about where can you just go to industry and say, I want to buy a capability. I want to buy it off the shelf. Sometimes I'm going to buy it as a product. Sometimes I'm I'm going to buy it as a service. And we need a budgeting and a congressional appropriation system that is more flexible and able to adapt to these types of new acquisition environments. Of course, if you eliminate the colors of money or reduce them, then it's incumbent on DOD to make sure they really get results and don't spend whatever colorless money they have, but nothing to show for it. And that hasn't always been the case either. Right. I mean, it it is always a balancing act of, you know, you want Congress to give enough flexibility to the department so they can use the money effectively and not make bad decisions or rush decisions or inefficient decisions. You also want to give Congress enough insight to conduct effective oversight to make sure the money is being used wisely. So it is a balancing act. And, you know, I'm hopeful the commission will 
really look at this hard and try to figure out how do we strike a new balance that actually works in today's technological environment. And while we have you, you mentioned you'll be doing research and analysis and budgetary types of work for Meta. What does Meta do? <laughs> well, Meta is a, a pretty diversified We should say company. Meta Aerospace because there's another yeah. company called Meta. We don't want to be confused with them. Yeah, yeah. It's not Facebook. <laughs> no relationship. No, a Meta Aerospace does a lot of different things. And you know, the core business is basically providing effects as a service for defense. And, uh, you know, that's in a lot of different areas. I mean, one example is airborne ISR, you know, delivering that as a service. Uh, so you can buy it by the hour or aerial refueling uh, as a service. They're already doing that today, you know, with their own fleet of tankers that they operate, maintain themselves, and then can just deliver that by the hour, by the pound of fuel to the customer as required. Also got business units, you know, in a lot of different areas, looking at simulation, AI, lots of things. So it's a pretty diversified company. And that's, that's what makes it exciting to me to be coming in where, you know, there are a lot of potential avenues that my research could end up going. Just make sure I understood you. The company owns aircraft that can refuel military airplanes? Yes. Why doesn't the Air Force buy those, whatever they are? That is a good question. Uh, the Navy already buys the service. Uh, it's a very good question. Why hasn't the Air Force uh, started doing what the Navy has been doing for quite a while and using aerial refueling as a service to supplement their own organic capabilities? And if you refuel a really big plane, do you get a set of cocktail glasses? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that I don't know, but I, I still want to try to finagle a ride on one of the planes uh, and sit back there with the boom operator. <laughs> All right. Well, send us pictures if you do. Defense analyst Todd Harrison is now Senior Vice President of Meta Aerospace. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And I hope to be in touch. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing 
we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly 
gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.